Growing a business is hard, but it does not have to be. Once a week, we take a break from the hustle and bustle in business to talk about innovations and what's new in the C-suite. This is the Fractional C-Suite Retreat, and I'm Joseph Frost. Pull up a seat at the fire, grab a drink, smoke a cigar, and just join me as we relax, learn, and get inspired. This retreat is sponsored by Your CMO, helping organizations grow with better marketing strategy. Today's guest is an industry thought leader. He is host of the Impactful Leadership Show podcast, is managing partner at Blackburn Capital Advisors, and his name is Greg McDonough. Greg, welcome to the show. Joe, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you too. Um, it'll be a fun hour or so, so uh, let's get it started right away. The, the question that I like to, uh, to pose to, to the, my guests uh, right off the bat is, is um, around the idea of what what, are, what do you think C-suites might be missing out today? You know, as, as from your perspective, as you work with many different clients and C-suites, um, what do you see as an opportunity that they might not be seeing? Yeah, it's a, it's a, a great question, Joe. And I, I think the top of the list um, is there's a tremendous amount of resources available to C-suite executives in the industry, either from expertise, experience, you name the discipline, you think around your boardroom, um, your traditional boardroom from HR to finance to marketing to PR with the, with the great resignation, with entrepreneur thinking, there is, a, again, a tremendous amount of resources available for individuals managing teams, managing companies, managing organizations that um, really hasn't been tapped into to its greatest extent that it could be. And are you thinking that's uh, other executive level resources or just resources in general, specialists at, at mid and, and lower levels? You know, I, you know, from where I approach it, right, I'm, I'm on the finance side. And so I tend to focus more on the executive level. Um, but I certainly think there's resources available for the entire team, right? If it's things from Upwork or Fiverr or any of those types of resources of just getting your job done in a more efficient and effective way is certainly a resource for that middle management um, group. But from the executive perspective, and, I, and I, I'm passionate about this because prior to doing this type of work, I ran a business and I bought it out of a chapter 11 bankruptcy process. And I remember just sitting there going crazy, going, I wish somebody could just help me with the answers versus me at two o'clock in the morning, Googling chapter 11 bankruptcy process, right? And there's, there was always resources at the high end sort of attorney level where you're spending the thousand dollars an hour to get the advice or you're doing it yourself. And I think where the opportunity is and where I'm trying to live is in that space where it's, hey, I've got, we've got experience. We wanna love the work that we're doing. Um, you know, you know, build a team around you that of expertise that will help you in, in times of need or, or opportunities. Yeah, I, I believe that's the greatest opportunity. Uh, I, I speak about that all the time. The greatest opportunity for entrepreneurs and C-suite execs today is taking advantage of the fractional specialists out there, the fractional executives that um, are available they're, they're on, they're on, they're on LinkedIn. They're on in the market looking for work and they want to do work this way fractionally, which is much more affordable, much more flexible, 
much more productive than a full-time hire at that level for most companies. Now there's times when, you know, full-time hire is the right decision, but it's the biggest opportunity, I think. And I'm glad you, you see that from your perspective. Um, it's also what I've found. It's really hard, uh, particularly for founders. I'm curious if you've run into this to be able to do kind of that trust transfer mm-hmm. because they're, they've, many times been doing a lot of that work themselves and, and frankly are probably pretty good at it, but for them to grow and scale their business, they've got to transfer that trust and to somebody that they don't really know that well. And that they're not hiring as a full-time that is an outsider still. So how have you seen that and, and how do you deal with that kind of trust transfer issue? Yeah, certainly it's, it's a huge issue. And I think it's the other challenge is time, right? To find somebody takes time. It's sort of like the hiring process, right? It's just another project for that C-suite executive to take on while doing all the other things. But back to your question um, around trust, the way I have gotten around that or built trust with my clients is identifying a very small initial project. You know, it could be a financial analysis. It could be work on PPP. There's a handful of things that I sort of dive into initially that I, I scope, it's small, it's you know, a handful of hours worth of work, there's a value proposition at the end for the client, and we execute on that. And when I deliver, it very quickly turns into a, another conversation around what other opportunities they're, they're seeing or struggling with or things that are on their desk that, that um, they may want to take off their desk. And so again, back to your question, for, for me, the strategy has been one, if it comes in as a warm referral, that's always the easiest. And then two, it's let's identify something that's manageable that you will have a value out of, regardless if we continue on a longer term relationship. And let's start with that. And that's step one. And then step two is, okay, well, let's add a little bit more. And step three, a little bit more. And then, you know, the flexibility of, hey, if it's tax season and you're really busy sending information to your CPA, I could expand my time. And I think this is the other value that C-suites are missing with the fractional world is the fraction, your, your resource can ebb and flow depending on what your need is. So right now is tax season. And so I'm doing a lot of what I call grunt work for my clients so that they can stay focused on their business. And now when it comes, you know, April 15th, May 15th, that will, will, you know, retract. And then there'll be other things for me to focus on. But again, the value that we're bringing is that ebbing and flowing to the client's needs so that they can stay focused on their business and executing how they need to. Yeah. Yeah. It's a resource that they didn't used to have access to. And um, it's, it's, it's still, um, it's still something they don't know how to tap into. You know, part of the reason why we're, doing this podcast and speaking about it is just to educate them that the resources out there, but then help, help a protect, you know, prospective founder or C-suite executive to tell them in your opinion, what, what are the criteria they should be looking for when they're trying to find a fractional professional, whether it be a CFO, CMO, CTO, whatever, what are some of the criteria they should be looking for? Do you have any guidance there? Yeah, certainly. Um, I think, and it goes back to your previous question. It, first criteria is trust, right? It's that relationship um, and how they're introduced to folks that do this type of work. Um, 
you know, it's sort of the networking, sort of the LinkedIn profile. It's, you know, what other C-suite executives are doing. Um, so I think, you know, to build that as previously as a CEO, you know, the, the, the first question I guess to answer is, you know, is there an opportunity for me to, to, to maximize my performance or the business's performance in a certain criteria? And for some businesses over the next six to 12 months, it could be a marketing play, it could be a sales play, it could be a finance play. And depending on where you're trying to go shorter term, right, six to 12 months, will probably identify where there's a gap in your, in your bench, in your resources that hopefully will allow you to, to sort of whittle down to, like having a fractional person in every seat around your board table on day one is almost impossible to pull off, right? So it's almost what's most critical to your business, to your personal life right now that you could get additional support to additional expertise, focus on that, ask around, do some LinkedIn, have some conversations. And really at the end, for me, it comes down to a personality connection, right? It's, do I have the same values? Am I gonna be passionate about my client? Is they're gonna be passionate about us being successful together? Yeah. I think the other issue is you just don't know if you need that, that fractional expertise for three months or three years. And right. uh, so if it's, if you're short-term thinking like, gosh, I just got to solve this problem, leaping to a full fractional engagement, may be too, too much of a, a leap. Whereas if you're long-term thinking, yeah, I know I need this filled for the next three years or for a longer period of time, even than that, they might leap to a full-time person instead. So this fractional position, it really lives in a unique place in the mind of the, the executives at the C-suite. And what I've found is that the right fractional person, you can bring them in initially for three months, see how that works, expand that into a larger engagement because the right fractional team member is coming in already thinking three years out, but will mm-hmm. take the three-year approach or the three-month approach to help get us all there faster and quicker. That's right. The one thing I'd, I'd add to that, especially as a professional in this field, um, it's also important to, to have the, the mindset of, you know, I, I'll answer that differently or, or make my point differently. Most of my assignments end because I found a full-time person to do a part of the role, right? And so like I've come in and done very CFO type of work for a short stint. And at the end of that, we've identified that, hey, you really just need to outsource to build.com and hire a bookkeeper and do this. And then let's check in once a quarter versus once a week, right? And so as a professional in the field, having that mindset that the long-term solution might not be you sitting there every week or having a phone call twice a month or whatever the case, that mindset's a challenge. And then I also find with my clients that the challenge of, well, Greg's gonna be here forever. And, and, you know, go from one day a month to two days a month to 30 days a month. And all of a sudden he's going to be my full-time person. And and I have to step back and say, no, that's not, that's not what is beneficial for you. And I love our relationship, but you want me to have my fingers in a lot of different clients so that we can share information. Yeah, for sure. That's a good point because the, the purpose of our engagement also is likely the same. We want to, we want to exit with, and I never thought about it as a portion of, of, of the work being full-time, but that's exactly what it is. It's not, 
taking a full-time CMO or a fractional CMO and replacing them with a full-time CMO. It's taking a fractional CMO that kind of builds the architecture, fills out where the whole, how the whole fill the holes and a full-time, you know, marketing specialist might be all you really need now that the plan's built, but then that quarterly or ongoing check-in that's right helps keep that uh, plan in place. I like that analogy. Um, so tell me, how'd you get into this line of work? What were you doing that took you into fractional work? Yeah, so, you know, great, interesting question. So I mentioned earlier, my previous business, EEI Communications, we were a publishing services firm that I joined in probably 2006 as their CFO. And again, here's another role. You know, we're doing six, seven million in revenue at the time, joined as their full-time CFO. And out of the 100% of my work, probably 20% of it was strategic, financial strategic. And the other 80 was making sure payroll gets run and AP gets this, and like very transactional, mm-hmm. um, which was sort of my first introduction to like, well, this 80% I don't want to be doing and this 20% I'm really good at. Um, But anyways, I ended up buying that business, as I said, through a chapter 11 bankruptcy process. And through that life cycle, I struggled with finding the right resources for the, at the right time. And, you know, we came out of the bankruptcy process. There was a, a success story there. I ultimately ended up selling the business, um, after another economic impact and a little discussion with the bank. And I parted ways with the business and the employees went one way and I went another way because I truly saw a need and an opportunity for other types of businesses that were like mine to have the right support team around them when there's new opportunities, when there's challenges. And it isn't the traditional CPA law firm solution, right? It's not the by the hour big bill rate. It's, hey, there's people out there that, especially now with you know technology and, and working remote and being virtual across the world that can lean in when needed. And so again, my I got into this because I saw a need for it. And then I developed a passion for doing things more efficient, efficiently, more effectively. I try to outsource everything in my life if I can. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, you got to kind of, you know, sing your own song uh, when you need to. Yeah. Outsourcing has been around for a long time. It's the fractional C-suite that's, you know, relatively new, but the, sure. the idea makes sense at whatever level you can execute it. Um, I was wondering, so your, your bankruptcy experience, what is that like? What is it like? buying a business from bankruptcy and then trying to take it out of bankruptcy. That's just, a, that's fascinating to me. How did, how did you, why did you take on that challenge? That sounds like a lot. Yeah. So <laughs> in fact, I wrote a book about it. It's called the turnaround and you can find it on Amazon. And okay. the day it published, my mom bought a copy and that was my leading sales day. But yeah. um, you know, it, it's funny, like looking back, Things seem to be in a straight line and were there for on purpose. But in the moment, to answer your question, I had no idea. Like it was, I knew I was a finance person and I was good at leading a team. This company, I believed in it. I had a passion in it. I believed in the overall organization. And, you know, it wasn't just me that decided to take it into bankruptcy. It was 
you know, the 2008, 2009 basically demolished our revenue. We had all kinds of leases and debt and uh, real estate commitments. And the CEO at the time, this was sort of like his last hurrah. And uh, an attorney said, you know, you could take this into a, a bankruptcy. If, if you can come out the other end, you could take this into a bankruptcy process. And at the time, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to start looking for work. This is not going to last. And for something in me, this must be that entrepreneur just said, you know what? I could figure this out. And if I could lead this team and the finance effort and all the process that goes around with the bankruptcy process, if I could handle that, it would reduce the legal fees. I'll be at the table when a decision needs to be made. And ultimately, that's what happened, right? We, so we managed through the process. I built a great relationship with our, our lender. We worked hand in hand on how to come out the other end. And then when it came to the ultimate sale, the auction at the end, you know, I was the leading contender um, for the business. And so I stroked my check and the next day we're out of bankruptcy and we're kind of back to normal. The funny thing, the funny story in that was the day after bankruptcy, coming out of bankruptcy, um, I had this, this fear in me. It's like, I'm not, this company isn't protected by the bankruptcy process anymore. <laughs> and are we going to just end up going down the same road that got us here? Versus when you're in, and granted, everyone's looking at you. It's like you're in a fishbowl, right? You've got monthly reporting. It's all public record. You know, vendors are, it's chaos, but it's a process and it, and the courts manage through it. But again, that, that day one, it was like, oh boy, I'm on my own again. Um, this, like, it was interesting. And anyway, it just touches on the, the feeling. <laughs> so what was the timeline from when? You, uh, you know, we had to start talking about bankruptcy, then go through bankruptcy, then get out of bankruptcy. And then ultimately, when, when did you exit after that? Yeah, that's a great question. So we went in, so it's 2000, it's 21 now. I ended up selling in 19. So it was much, we came out in 2016. I'm just going reverse. So we went in in 2014. So 2008, 2009 hit the business hard. We managed through probably four years, right? If I do my math, four or five years of just trying to like manage vendors and payments and the rest of it. Ultimately, the landlord went after us. And so we had, we filed chapter 11 bankruptcy in 2014. It was a two year process. So we came out in 2016 and then I ran it for, you know, three years. Um, and the trick for us was, part of the bankruptcy agreement was our principal and interest payments to the bank would escalate over time, according to our forecast. And as time went on, we didn't hit that forecast. And so the pressure with the bank started to build again. And, uh, you know, that's at the time the team was small enough that we basically had a, 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 a big parent conversation and say, Hey, here are our options. Either we're going back into this again, and we don't have the, the resources for it or, you know, here are some relationships that I have that would be interested in taking you on as a team and let's just, you know, close the doors basically. But so you found a strategic buyer that valued the, the team and, and what was there. That's right. Was That's right. willing to take on the, the debt burden along with the team. That makes sense. Well, so the debt stayed to, to be technical, the debt actually stayed with the company and we shut down the business. Oh, okay. Um, 
the team continued and I have a relationship with that team and that organization that took on, and it was a friend of mine. Right. And so by me, by me separating from the business, there wasn't any foul play there. Like, Oh, we're just going to rebrand and, and call ourselves something different. And we're now running this business. I completely separated from, from the organization and basically called the bank and my attorney and said, look, um, it is what it is. And, and it all kind of went away after a handful of months. Yeah. Yeah. That's tough. That's uh, quite an experience though. You must yeah. learn a lot. You, you understand a lot more about bankruptcy and, and the process than you probably ever wanted to. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also to your point, you know, as a finance fractional finance professional, it's one of my calling cards when I bring to the table, right? It's, Hey, if you're thinking about a fractional CFO or a financial management coach or whatever you want to call it, it's, Hey, I've, I've been in your shoes. Right. And we've gone through some difficult times. I've seen some great opportunities. I've done all these things. So let me take my expertise and experience and help apply it to your business or organization in a way that, that allows you to reach your goals. Yeah. Do you go after some of that type of work specifically company turnaround companies? I haven't yet. Um, yeah, you know, I, I would, I'd entertain it for sure. Um, you know, there tends to be the, you know, the bigger players out there that go for the larger organizations um, that have it down to us because it does get very, very technical as well. Right. And so me managing something through a chapter, another bankruptcy process as an outsider, as an advisor, is I would imagine would be different than, you know, living it every day yeah. inside. Um, all that said, many of the clients I'm introduced to, or at least the prospects tend to have some sort of, you know, black eye or bloody nose or something that, <laughs> that needs some attention. Needs some and so attention. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can, you can recognize that early on. Uh, did you, would you have done anything looking back different? Um, I just think about there was four or five years there. It sounds like between when you got hit with the revenue crisis and before you finally got into the bankruptcy pro like would, would you looking back done any of that timeline or any of those decisions differently? Certainly. Um, the biggest would be to either to got into the bankruptcy process earlier, because if we would have got into that process and let's say 2008, 2009, when that first economic hit really dinged our business, we would have had more cash in the bank. We'd have more revenue, more clients, more vendors who still wanted to work with us. Um, you know, that time period between the, the 08, 09 economy shift. And when we actually filed, we probably, you know, lost another 40% of revenue and profitability. And, and so again, back to your question, looking back, I would have entertained the bankruptcy process sooner. And even prior to that made tougher decisions of, of cutting deep or letting go of a division or, you know, these hard decisions that you get really emotional about because of people are involved and rightfully so, um, I would have looked at that with a, with a different lens, knowing what I know now. Um, Cause ultimately at the end of the day, all of our vendors were, you know, they weren't hundred percent happy, but they were pleased with the outcome. They continued to be paid even in the bankruptcy. Process. That was one of the learnings going through the process um, that I didn't appreciate is one, 
the client still wanted to have work done. And so the fact that we were in a bankruptcy process or not in a bankruptcy process didn't really matter to the clients. Um, and then two, same with the vendors and the employees. I mean, these folks just wanted to get the work done. And for the vendors, you know, my conversation with them was, look, hey, we're a credit risk. We're a higher credit risk than we were before. So charge me more. And I'm going to try to pass it on to the client. And if I can, great. And if I can't, I'll have to find some other margin somewhere else. But th- what was really shocking to me going through after the before and after filing was how much the team stayed together, how much the vendors wanted to continue to work, how much the client still wanted services delivered. And knowing that after the fact would have made that decision of going into the process earlier, easier. Interesting. Gosh, it's fascinating. But that, that experience that you have with just that story, how valuable is that to a new client that, that hires you for a completely different reason? But now because you're a fractional CFO, fractional finance person, you've got this expertise in finance, but you have this other expertise that you bring with you and those conversations that you can bring into the C-suite are so much more powerful than you know, just a full-time do-it-yourself kind of accountant CFO type. Right, right. Um, I, I think it's the driver. It's my driver. It, it's what's made it's what makes me re- relatable to that C-suite person. It's I have similar stories. I've had those dark moments. I've put the payroll on my credit card. I've done these things that we all know we shouldn't do, but we do. And so as I tell those stories, it makes me relatable to the clients and which then ultimately goes back to your question about building trust. So I think that experience allows me to build a trusting relationship with my clients quicker than if they found me on a billboard and and sent an email to some info at greg.com. Yeah, for sure. What are some of the nuances of um, fractional work versus full-time work that um, clients, prospective clients might not understand? Yeah, well, let me answer that in a a slightly different way. one of the nuances for me, and especially early on, and if, you know, I've only been in this for a handful of years, but it's a new and budding industry. It's really difficult to stop working, <laughs> right? <laughs> You're on a fractional basis, and let's say somebody's paying you for an eighth of your time, but you have no other clients. You're thinking about it. You're doing the work. It's just you just want to execute. And then all of a sudden that expectation happens. So this is answering your question. So then all of a sudden you build that expectation with your client that, hey, Greg's going to answer the phone every time I call. And then you fast forward two years and I've got a portfolio of clients and I'm not that, I can't be that responsive all the time, but that expectation was set. And so I guess the nuance for the, from the C-suite perspective is to have some understanding that you know, it is a, a, a team effort and um, there are other clients and they benefit from me having other clients. Cause again, if I have doing experience with an ERTC application with one client, I could bring that over to it and say, Hey, have you thought about this? And so that cross pollination is a real benefit to both, both organizations. Um, so back to your question, I think the nuance is, you know, the, 
it's just it's, it's around I guess managing expectations and turnaround and um, you know very quickly and I've had this with a handful of clients they start looking at me as their full time CFO and it's like wait a second no that's that's not what we signed up for or I had another client that thought I should be his investment banker and I'm like you can't do investment banking <laughs> two hours a week or and, and so again the expectations change from when you draft your scope of work to actually delivering your service to building your relationship. Um, and so, you know, keeping that all in check uh, is really what keeps me up at night. It's like, Oh, I'm not, I'm thinking about so-and-so and I should be doing this. And um, yeah. How do you set those expectations? You know, for me, it's, there's a couple of things. One is the statement of work, right. And that as tends to be, feel very legalese at the beginning and kind of you're getting off on the wrong foot because you want this trusted relationship and you want to be buddies and which and the rest of it. But at the end of the day, when we revisit what are the four things that we're going to be doing and at what frequency, it just makes it black and white. And so that's really, really helpful. Second to that um, is I build a, a, a rhythm, right? So it's every two weeks at Thursday at four o'clock, we're going to have a 15 minute conversation. And the work sort of gets centered around those touch points. Um, and the fact that they know that there's a touch point coming up allows them to sort of, you know, not send me an email every 25 minutes. You know, again, it's kind of, it puts the, puts the relationship into a rhythm and that rhythm uh, helps somewhat with the scope conversation. And then on, at the end of the day, it's really having, an honest, con- like if I get through a couple months and it's twice the workload, it's just a conversation. It's like, hey, Joe, look, here's the value that I'm driving and we're creating, working together. You know, it's off sync from what you're paying. And so let's either rescope or talk about where else this stuff could get done. And it's usually the, hey, yeah, no problem. I see if I'm delivering value, there tends to be no issue around the scope conversation. Right. Yeah. If you can, you know, in your world, um, well, I don't know, might not be much different in our world. It's values a little bit harder to um, clearly identify the value of a marketer. You know, there's, there's not as much ROI, black and white number metric drivers or some, um, but it can be somewhat subjective. So those conversations happen frequently with our CMOs to make sure we're always clear on expectations on track with uh, milestones and, and priorities that we're establishing together. We, we actually plan quarterly that way and adjust scopes on a quarterly basis intentionally because mm, we know sorry. that early in the engagement, something's a priority, but six weeks later, it's, you know, it changes <laughs> 180 degrees, but uh, right. uh, at least we can intentionally set those expectations quarterly. That's kind of right. our approach. Yeah. And I think, you know, going back to another question you had around, um, maybe it's around the nuance question. You know, to that, to your point, I hustle for my clients, and I know I suspect you hustle for your clients, and I think I hustle much more than an employee does. And again, nothing against full-time employees, right? They're great, economy's awesome, go for it. But at the end of the day, every quarter when I'm up for a renewal, I know. Hey, I'm up. I, I got to put my best on again. And every time I'm interacting with a client, I got to show that I'm delivering value. Because at the end of the day, they could just say, you know what? After this go around, we're we're 
we're going to change scope. We're going to change direction. We're going to hire somebody full-time. And so I think by having fractional professionals around you, those professionals are hustling more so, and I'm speculating here, but probably hustling more so than an employee that's coming in at nine, leaving at six, doing the job, making sure that the trains are run on time for, for us, right? It's, we got to perform and, or we don't get our next gig or we don't get our extension or, and so there's a different level, I think of intimacy there um, that really benefits the, the C-suite executive. Yeah, I agree completely. I think fractional can be more productive than full-time. And part of it is you, know, you only have a few hours a day or, or you know, a week to give to a particular client you have to be more productive. You have to focus on the bigger That's priority right. items because you just don't have, you can't take all that filler work. Um, and I think it's a big deal. Um, that, that, that dollar for dollar exchange is much higher uh, when you look at the productivity as well as the, the fractional nature of things. Right. Yeah. It's like that last day before you go on vacation yeah. and all of a sudden you've gotten four days worth of work done in 25 minutes. Right. We've, we operate in that world because it's yeah. every day point every yeah. day. It's like, Hey, we gotta, we gotta get to the punchline and, and keep this thing moving. Yep. What's your, as a fractional, do you have any, uh, you don't have to name names, but do you have any difficult clients or a bad engagement that, that you were got, that got involved in that didn't work out? Yeah. The one I mentioned um, was the one that we started as a, fractional CFO assignment. Um, and I should have saw the red flag on this early because we started negotiating my price right off the beginning. And he's like, I'm a startup and what about this? And I came up with this creative idea of deferring some of my fee that would be paid off in an equity. Anyway, long story. But where that went south, that relationship with him, and I'm still friends with the entrepreneur. Um, where that went, went south is when we started needing to raise money. And you know, I have experience in that, but I'm not an investment banker. And because that's a, a special type of animal. Um, but I said, hey, you know what? I'll reach out to this small group of potential investors that you know, that you have relationships with. And then I'll bird dog the, the you know, bird dog the process. And he heard that as I was going to do a full time investment mm -hmm. banking sort of effort that comes with a success fee and all the bells and whistles. And after about a month of me not sending him my call list every week and going through the marketing program and coming up with a book and the rest of it, <laughs> he got very sour in the mouth. And, you know, I said, you know what, this isn't worth it. Um, good luck. Let's stay in touch. Um, but yeah, it was painful at the time. I mean, it's probably the only heated conversation I've had with a client about scope because he went one way and I was going another and I was hearing what he was saying as a criticism of my work. And that put me over the edge and I've had some reflection about it later, but um, it was not a fun experience. <laughs> yeah. It's hard. Um, honing in on that right target client is as a fractional professional, I think it's really an important thing to try to figure out early on in your career, in your practice. Uh, we have, almost a dozen CMOs and each of them has a different ideal client, uh, different mm -hmm. size, different type of business. Um, geography plays a little bit of, uh, into it. Personalities play a lot into it. And so the sooner, is it industry? 
industry it, play into that? Not as, it, it does a little, um, not as much business model, maybe more like B2B versus B2C versus sure. uh, SaaS uh, is a little more applicable, but industry are most of our CMOs have a pretty diverse um, set of industries they've worked with at that high strategic level. You can kind of cross over pretty easily. Um, but from time to time, there's a focus, like someone really wants to stay in government uh, IT work as an example, but um, she's taken work outside of that just just, easy, just as easily. Um, I'm curious, but, Joe, on that, you said you have a handful of CMOs. Did you start as your own CMO and then you've grown that into a CMO infrastructure business? Yeah, essentially that's or, how... Did you all band together at some point in time just to share resources and marketing costs, I guess? So our business model started with when I met my, my business partner, Jay. He was a marketing consultant, uh, kind of a, essentially a fractional CMO, but was way, way too much in the weeds. Um, he was at, the scope was always creeping into from build a strategy to, okay, now jump on social media and do you know 10 posts this week and, you know, that 80, 20, really that, those tactical things he you know, didn't want to do. And I um, happened to own a video production company. And so I had, I was on the vendor side of things trying to find the clients for, um, for the video work we do, but most businesses that didn't have a strategic marker, didn't understand how to implement video within their business. And so I would, I had that frustration. Um, so when we were, you know, comparing notes and, and uh, talking about the, the market, we realized there was a, an opportunity to do two things. One is help business owners that don't have access to strategic talent get it in a fractional way and help fractional professionals or consultants that uh, were too much in the weeds to develop a mm -hmm. real practice at the strategic level. And so we borrowed the Know, what we'd seen work well in fractional CFO space and applied it to the fractional CMO space. And, and then I did practice for a couple of years uh, with clients. Uh, so did Jay, as we built and tweaked our model, um, built our proven process and frameworks and tools and resources. And then as we started to add more CMOs to our team, um, I, I backed away from practice work more to developing our, our infrastructure and our team and supporting mm -hmm. them. And, uh, that's, uh, that's our model. And so I had a chance to you know, be in the business as a CMO, but also now helping other CMOs build their practices. And then we started the fractional professionals association as a way to extend everybody's reach, um, and, and learn from each other because the challenges that CFOs have CMOs have, but then there are, might be some unique ones that CFOs have that CMOs don't, but we can right. learn from one another, grow each other's individual practices. And that's what kind of led me into this podcast, which is to start interviewing all sorts of fractional professionals out there, understand what they're, they're doing that, that's working and, and um, help and tell the story about the fractional opportunity for C-suites. Sure. I'm flipping the podcast on you by asking yeah, sure, go questions, ahead. <laughs> but my other question is, um, right. There's transactional work, right. I would assume within your CMO umbrella that your clients probably ask you to do. So for me, one of mine is, Hey, can you also do my bookkeeping? Yeah. And I don't have a, a bench of bookkeepers or 
you know, I've got relationships out there and I tend to turn away from that business, but I've always contemplated like when is the right time to actually incorporate that into my service offering, either through a partnership or through another fractional bookkeeper, whatever you want to call it. Um, so I'm curious how you handle the downstream work that comes out of the strategic work that you and your CMOs do. Yeah, that's a great question. We went into this uh, at the very beginning uh, with with a mindset that we did not want to do any um, like agency work. Uh, we felt that that would um, potentially keep us from being truly fiduciary. And um, we'd seen many fractional CMO imposters out there that were really just agencies, you know, fronting a person to build a strategy to use more of their agency services. And we didn't want to be that business. So intentionally, we started building just um, partners that do that downstream work, people that we trust that we can bring into the relationship. We can get that work done um, as you know, more effectively and, and, more, and more cost effective than most agencies can. So when we get into an engagement, you know, that's one of the reasons why people hire us is because they know we're not going to try to sell them anything. We don't have other services. It's truly, we're going to build your strategy and we oversee its execution. Mm -hmm. But we also have the execution people as partners, you know, people we can bring in. Um, and we direct, we have those partners direct bill the client. So we're not, we're not a middleman. We don't upcharge that. That's part of our service offering. Uh, so that's been our in our DNA from day one. And I think that's served us well. Um, there, there is a little bit of crossover. We realize that when you think of agency work, like creative design, copywriting, uh, managing ad spend, uh, that's work that we don't want to do. But then there was a lot of administrative project management, kind of like more marketing coordinator work that we, we do already for our clients. We have full-time marketing coordinators that work with us that support our CMOs. But there started being a bigger demand on that person. Like, oh, can I just have 10 hours a week of that person to do this work? And it wasn't necessarily creative agency type work. It was just more administrative behind the scenes. And um, we didn't have a solution for that. And so we are, we've been investigating that. And now we're preparing to release what we call our marketing MVP, which is a full-time marketing specialist. Um, that's not a necessarily a designer or a creative agency type person, but a full-time person that is overseen by the CMO. And we call that a marketing MVP. So it's a way for our CMOs to add some resources to their uh, clients' teams and it's a way for clients to access just, just tactical work uh, overseen by a CMO. But it's still not design, copy. It's the other stuff that a lot of, client, a lot of companies need that we felt was a little bit of a, uh, a hybrid of Got some additional services, but not, but staying pure to not being an agency. Got it. You know, you answering that question made me think of back to your, I think your first question around, maybe it was your second question around, um, you know, why, how, how does a C level person identify where they may or may not need a fractional support? And what came to mind was if there's a project on your plate, right? You're a C-level person and there's a product, let's say it's taxes. We'll do it in finance because that's easy for me. So I know business owners hate dealing with their CPA and their taxes and collecting all the information and asking, answering all those questions about like, why did you spend $10 on a, whatever, on a hot dog? <laughs> those projects that have to get done that you hate doing or hate managing is probably 
a number one contender for a fractional person to step in, yeah. right? I do a lot of work with interior designers and they hate dealing with their finances and they don't like dealing with their cash flow, but it's a necessity. It's a necessity in their business because the lights will get turned off. They, by working through me or with me, it allows them just to take a bite size of the information that they need to, so they can make business decisions. And they've got the comfort that they know that somebody who's professional and has experience is looking over that project that they don't want to do. So back to your original question, I would see a fractional person being very beneficial to a project that you don't want to do, but you have to do. Um, you know, it could be marketing for another example. Like I don't, I appreciate marketing. I don't know how to do it. Um, and by reaching out to you, I'd probably would have collapsed a lot of headache and time and wasted resources because you can get to the finish line much faster than I can and vice versa. So anyway, just rethinking that, that question. Yeah. And marketing is one of those, um, what marketing is interesting because a lot of founders particularly are, are really good at marketing their business because they started it. They know the product or service better than anybody. And they know the comp that they know the competition next to, you know, the customer better than anybody. And they know their customers really well. So they're good marketers that by definition, mm -hmm. that's what marketing is. Right. But they get to a point in their business where that mind share that marketing is taking up is better off given to somebody else so that they can move on to build more growth and, and more visionary work for the business. But it's so hard to find somebody that they think is as good as them that they can trust. And that's the hurdle that we're always trying to figure out how to overcome for clients is we're, we have a core value that says, you know, trust the process, value the expertise. And that was one of our core values six or seven years ago. And I, it's never more apparent than when I talk to a founder who has been doing all the marketing of their business and now brings us in for the first 60, 90 days. And it's got to beat in their head. You have to trust our process because it works and you have to value the expertise of the person that's executing. And they're going to do something maybe differently than you would, but there's a reason for that. And owners that can do that and founders and C-suite executives that can allow that to happen um, are very successful. You know, we have really long-term engagements and those that can't get over that, um, those are very short-term. Um, right. And I find it especially difficult when it's a fractional person than a full-time. Because I think when somebody's ready to make that full-time investment, they're ready to completely let it go. But when they're bringing in a fractional, it's still hard to let that go. Like they, there's yeah. still this, this uh, love-hate relationship with, with clients that we have that just don't want to let go of that marketing. And Yeah. It's control. <laughs> yeah. Control and ego, control. right? Yeah. Um, but that's our, that's our challenge. And, and this, it's the CMO's job to build that relationship and that trusted relationship and sh you know, show that expertise and add value. Um, and it's, we feel it's our job to build the processes and the systems to make sure that's mm -hmm. an easier trust transfer and that the value is um, much more apparent. That's good stuff. So what do you like to do outside of uh, finance, personally? Yeah, so I'm a triathlete. Um, my wife and I have... She's done 10 full distance Ironman triathlons. I've done seven. Wow. Uh, we do them together. 
um, our kids think it's normal. <laughs> we, we blog on a, on a stale website called triathlonparents.com. Um, but it's been our passion really for the last probably 10 years. Um, gives us the balance, gives us the exercise, allows us to drink a little bit more wine at night. Um, so that uh, the hobby front. And then I just, I love being a father. I'm a father of two girls, uh, Sasha and Simone. Sasha's 12, Simone's nine. And, you know, taking you know, this entrepreneurial mindset and, and trying to feed it into their day-to-day life of how they think and see the world and make opportunities. And it's, there's something there for me that just gets me going. Um, yeah. So those are a couple of the hobbies. Uh, do the girls uh, participate at some level in, in the triathlons, either like a fun run or, you know, swim or bike or yeah, anything along the way? Yeah, usually they'll do um, the the Iron Kids event the day before. Okay. And it's more that we're forcing them to do it than they want to. <laughs> uh, but they're both heavy into swimming, uh, which is how I started in this. So, you know, I was a swimmer basically all through high school. Um, and then picked up swimming again when my wife was training for her first Ironman. And so for me, that was the segue into triathlon. And if you talk to any, most triathletes or, or most wannabe triathletes, their biggest fear is the pool and the swimming. Um, so hopefully that's a big checkbox uh, for them to, to do these. Right. I'd love, you know, four or five years, I guess it would be six, seven years from now to be toe in the line with one of my daughters at a race and it'd just be it'd be fun it's fun to see them on the court like one of the reasons i love doing these things with monique my wife um is just trying to anticipate where i'm going to see her on the bike course for example like uh-huh. you're just sitting on the bike for seven hours and you're going over this course twice at some point in time you should cross each other and granted we start at different times and we're at different speeds but it's just that anticipate it takes a lot of the the pain away yeah it takes your mind off the pain a bit that's right. Uh, I, I, those triathlons are amazing. Uh, I mean, Ironman for sure are just, it's insane what you guys go through. Um, there was a speaker I saw once, I think he was called, I think he called himself the iron cowboy. Have you heard of this yeah, guy? I've seen him. I've read his book. 50 Ironmans in 50 days. In 50 states. In 50 states. <laughs> yeah. Insane. And to hear him speak about, th- about that experience, you know, he started in I think they started in Hawaii and then they went to Alaska and then they kind of worked their way across. However, right. that, you know, you finish the Ironman in Hawaii and then you got to get on a plane and you got to hydrate and you got to get ready because tomorrow morning you're starting the one in Alaska. That's and every incredible. day, the pain, he said, that your body feels that your mind, your mind feels it before your body, you know, uh, I guess, you know, mind feels it before the body really needs you to stop doing it. So you can, you can work through the pain, even though your mind's telling you one thing, your body's telling you that different. It's, I have a, a lot of respect. A lot yeah, of respect. he's. Um, I saw him speak probably two years ago now, pre-pandemic, and um, I think he asked the audience if anyone has done an Ironman or a triathlon or something, and so I raised my hand, and I think he tried to call me out on it, and he's like, "Which ones have you done?" And luckily, I was able to yeah. list them all off, but. Um, yeah, just seeing some of the photographs of his toes and hearing his story about falling asleep on the bike and crashing. And I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, I can't walk for three weeks after a race. I couldn't imagine. Granted, you see him, right? He's so physically fit mm-hmm. and as, as well trained. And so, um, but yeah, it's an incredible feat. And it, and it also, 
the team it takes around him for him right. to accomplish that. Right. So the, who's covering the family, who's paying the bills, who's, you know, and so it's not just one man's pioneering because, you know, he's got a wife and kids and a mortgage and the rest of it. And so I think the real story behind that is um, around the infrastructure that it takes. And, and we have it too, for us to do these races, right. We live close to my parents on purpose. Yeah. Um, Cause it takes a village to get somebody to achieve that type of goal, um, which there's some, you know, underlying meaning there so, for sure. Yeah. I think I'd be like a fractional Ironman athlete. Let's give me like <laughs> six miles on the bike. That's my, right. <laughs> that's, that's about my speed. I could do that. Awesome. I could do that 50 days in a row, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but do uh, nothing else. Right? Yeah. But nothing <laughs> else. Yeah, for sure. It's sleep six miles it's sleep. Um, so when do you have a Ironman coming up? So with the next one on the calendar is in July in Spain. Um, oh, wow. And this has been on the calendar pre pandemic and they've moved it twice. We deferred last year. Um, so that's the one that we're training for at the moment, but yeah. with Omicron and the rest of it, we, I'm not sure we'll, we'll actually get this one done this year, but next year for sure. Yeah. That, that would be fun to go to a, you know, big, big destination event yeah. that you can kind of plan maybe some pre-vacation or post-vacation around it a little bit. Yeah. And that's normally what we've done. It's, you know, my parents come, we've been to Germany, we've been to Switzerland, we've been to, you know, around the world really. And it's a, a week or 10 day vacation afterwards. And, you know, it, it's, it makes it all the training really worth it. Yeah. Um, I had a friend that was traveling, was, was, I, I don't know if it was the Ironman. It might've been the half Ironman. Anyway, she'd, she'd been tra training for a big Ironman event or similar. And um, it was actually a client. Um, and it was a couple of years ago. It's like right in the middle of COVID. And they canceled her event and like a week before. Like she had been yeah. all ready to go. And so she just went to the gym and did it. Like ran the whatever miles on the treadmill, swam the whatever her. miles on the, she's like, I'm doing this thing because I've been training my butt off and, um, she did it all in the gym, which is pretty That's fascinating. Impressive. Yeah. Really impressive. I, I went through a, a phase of doing an urban Ironman. I called it where I would similarly would leave from my house or go to the pool, do my swim, jump on my bike and do this loop for seven hours or whatever it would take, have all my nutrition in my car. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, hmm, I'll just wait a year for the race because because <laughs> you know, on race day, like having the support there and the aid stations and the oh, professionals yeah. and like it's it takes a lot of the I don't know the difficulty of the day off the table, knowing that you know every mile on the run there's going to be somebody there with water and food and snacks and flat coke and it's it helps helps you get to the finish line for sure. Yeah. Yeah, doing it all in one day on your own <laughs> but yeah I mean, we've all done things we've never thought we would do because of covid true. which is amazing true uh, but we're hopefully coming out on the other side of that now knock on That's wood <laughs> well hey i've had a great time greg talking to you about all sorts of stuff today i appreciate your time and your expertise and uh getting to know you a little bit more and flipping the tables on me <laughs> yeah joe i appreciate that it's been a real a real pleasure yeah. It's an exciting, to exciting topic for sure. 
what would be the best way for someone to reach out to, to you? Uh, we'll have some of the general contact information in the show notes, but anything specific, email, LinkedIn, website, what do you prefer? Yeah, so LinkedIn is probably the best. Um, so it's just Gregory McDonough and you'll, you'll, my LinkedIn profile should pop up. If you want to catch me on the email, it's gmcdonough at blackburncap.com. But uh, yeah, I'd love to continue the conversation with anyone who's interested and you never know where those relationships end up going. Yeah, for sure. Well, we'll make sure we have that in detail in the show notes. And for all those listeners out there, reach out to, to Greg if you want to learn more about what he does or uh, more about um, the you know, running a, an Ironman. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure he'll share both with you and, uh, as he did me. So thanks again, Greg. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. And that's a wrap. There's another successful episode of the Fractional C-Suite Retreat. See our show notes and more episodes at fractionalcsuiteretreat.com. This podcast is sponsored by Your CMO, helping organizations grow, save time and money with better marketing strategy and fractional execution. Visit them at yorcmo.com, yourcmo.com, spelled wrong on purpose.